Welcome to A Pot Upon a Hill. I'm Mr. Vosliatis. I'm Mr. Copeland. Today, we're going to be talking about the Union in peril, the road to the Civil War. Here we go. When we talk about the causes of the Civil War, there are four main causes. And within those, I want you to keep in mind that there are economic, political, and social motivations for all of them. All right. Now, the first and the most obvious is the issue of slavery. We've been talking about the debate between free versus slave states since the Missouri Compromise. Expansionism and power within our government is what brings this debate up. In addition to that, we have constitutional disputes federal government versus state government. It's, this goes back to the beginning with Jefferson and Hamilton versus states' rights versus the federal control. And these are two of the most important causes that lead to the Civil War. The third cause is economic differences, debate over the tariffs that we've seen with South Carolina during the nullification crisis, the banks and the faux pas that was experienced during Jackson's administration, getting rid of the bank, the panic of 1836 uh, as a result of that, and of course the, the argument over internal improvements. While notably popular among all people across the political spectrum, how they're going to be paid for is going to be the source of contention. And finally, political blunders or mistakes that individuals make uh, that kind of gives the impression that one party is more radical as they really are, as well as the rise of extremism on both elements and, and high partisanship during the 1850s. So um, when we think about the Civil War, sometimes historians categorize this as an unfortunate happening or right. something that might have been unnecessary and avoidable. A war between brothers. Yeah, right? so sad that America had to fight one another and kill so many of our relatives in many cases. Some cases, people literally fought against their brothers or cousins right. or family members from the other side. But what I think Mr. V we and I... We disagree with yeah, that. <laughs> Mr. V and I are in the same mind that it is important to recognize that this was in many ways inevitable because we had had compromise after compromise that were kind of pushing this decision down the road and we had to eventually confront this. Most of all, this issue of slavery. But more was what type of country were we going to be going forward? I mean, even Lincoln, towards the, the beginning of the advent of the war, had in his famous speech, a house divided cannot stand. Mm -hmm. And he in it, he basically talked about we either have to decide that as a nation we accept slavery as a reality or we decide together as a nation that it no longer is something that we need to have. We have to be one thing. We can't be two things and say that that's going to work. This, so This paradox will be answered during this conflict. Of course. Um, so the conflicts in a large part about this was the conflicts over the status of the territories in the West. Mexican War, which we covered in period four, the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, this really opened the dispute. We tried to settle that with the Compromise of 1820, but it was reopened because of this. The Wilmot Proviso angered Southerners because it excluded slavery expanding to the West. 
it was defeated in the Senate, therefore it angers the Northerners. So back and forth, we see the political rivalries over the expansion of slavery and the turmoil that caused. One of the things we have mentioned, though, was these social movements in period four, the anti-slavery movement, temperance movement, the women's rights movement. There's another movement that emerges in the 1850s known as the Free Soil Movement. Now, they are opposing the spread of slavery, but not because of the same pure ideology of the moral failings of it that the anti-slavery movement had. They opposed the slavery for more of a self-serving purpose. As Mr. V mentioned in the past, slavery was viewed as the tool of the monopolizing forces of the economy where you have plantation owners and larger um, forces controlling the workforce. And how are you as a small a business owner or a, you a as a, a farmer going to compete with these larger plantations with the unfair advantage of slavery. In addition to that, the new immigration population coming to America, all looking for jobs, work, factory jobs are filling up in the Northeast. We're moving west. What if all the territories to the west have slavery? They're not going to need opportunity, not going to have opportunities because those t states are not going to need to hire workers. So Although they fought against the spread of slavery, it wasn't because of the same mindset as abolitionists. It wasn't because of the moral failings. It was because they both believed that it would be bad. And they also wanted it to only oppose slavery in the West only. They viewed it as we recognize the institution of slavery uh, within the South, uh, within the original 13 colonies. But anything beyond what has been agreed upon really deserves to be free for free lower class farmers. They will team up with the group of abolitionists under the Liberty Party, and these group of people are advocating for a complete elimination of slavery. And the Free Soilers, the, the Northern Democratic, and the Whigs are all going to form a temporary alliance to accomplish their political interests that at the time seemed to unify. But make no mistake, these groups were not um, thinking about the same uh, way of black people, the way they viewed slavery was completely different. They just had some, the, the, the result of abolition and slavery would have met all their competing interests, and that's why they unified and teamed up. And the Southern position while this is going on is that right. any attempt by any political party, whether it be the North, any of these factions that are temporarily allying themselves, any effort to restrict the institution of slavery would violate their constitutional rights. The state's rights to uh, inhibit slavery within their territory is their decision. They saw free soilers and abolitionists as having this very same agenda. Don't try and mince words about it. And moderate Southerners propose extending the Missouri Compromise straight out to California. Let's just keep that line. Um, that would make things simple. Others didn't like this for obvious reasons. Another uh, type of strategy that the Southerners are going to promote is the popular or squatter sovereignty and was conceived by a man named uh, Lewis Crass, a senator from Michigan, and the policy was basically stating that the people within the territories ought to decide on the status of whether or not their, their newly annexed state should be slave or free. It's very much a states' rights argument. Who are we in the federal government to tell people how to live their lives? Let the people there decide for themselves. Um, this won support by the moderates, but the problem is what this creates is a situation where people are rushing out to inhabit these territories to claim it one thing or another. Um, this brings about the election of 1848. Democrats nominate this man, Lewis Cass, and adopt his policy towards slavery. That's their official position. The Whigs, the party of the North, they nominate Zachary Taylor, general from the Mexican War. The Free Soil Party nominates Martin Van Buren, the man from New York. 
So the Whigs win the presidency. Why? Because of this third party that split the election, similar to the way things happened in 1824, similar to the way things happened in the 1800 election. The Free Soil Party was in large part comprised of Whigs from the North that were conscious of the slavery issue and eight anti-slavery Democrats. This split the vote. Therefore, you have a situation where Zachary Taylor becomes our next president. Uh, under his administration, he has to deal with another crisis, and this will be over the territory of California. Once we acquire that after the Mexican War, the Treaty of Guadalajara de Bajaldo, in 1859, Californians will become annexed as a free state. Taylor will plan on admitting California and New Mexico, a uh, territory that is won as a result of the Gadsden Purchase, as free states. Radical Southerners will meet to discuss how horrible this is, and they might discuss seceding from the Union. Henry Clay, in response, will propose a compromise for the sake of keeping our, our, our states unified. Yes, I mean, Henry Clay is known as the great compromiser because of his every single compromise in the last 30 years he's been involved in. But this goes back to the same debate during the Missouri Compromise, all about power within the government. So what does Clay propose? He admits California is a free state, but we're going to divide the remainder of what the Mexican government gave us into two territories, and we'll have those settlers decide. Popular sovereignty is the term, or that squatter's ter uh, sovereignty that we mentioned earlier. Oh, the last two parts of this compromise are an adoption of a new fugitive slave law. The Southerners were really um, insistent on this. They were concerned with the abolition movement encouraging uh, fugitive slaves moving to the north, they want to make sure that a new fugitive slave law would help enforce the return of these slaves to their rightful owners. Um, now, the North needs something, something as well. So what they get is that in the District of Columbia, and the final part of the compromise is that the slave trade is banned within the District of Columbia, but what they do allow is whites that do currently own slaves, they can continue to hold them, but it becomes less out in front in the public eye. So the reason why D.C. Um, wanted to ban the slave trade, because at the time, a lot of foreign dignitaries that would come to the capital kind of commented on how hypocritical our nation was espousing the principles of liberty and democracy at the same time, kind of walking across the street where human beings are in chains. And to a lot of the northerners, this seemed too much to stomach, and this type of policy would be largely applauded by the northerners. Now, um, in the Senate, they're debating this compromise, whether it should pass. Daniel Webster from the North says that, um, excuse me, Daniel Webster says that the North should compromise because it is important to keep our union together. John C. Calhoun, the South needs to turn down this compromise. It is not enough. We're giving too much with California being admitted as a free state. And then you have William Seward, who says that a higher law existed be beyond the Constitution. We need to focus on what God wants. This is very uh, reflective of the transcendentalist thinking that we talked about in the previous audio lecture. And William H. Seward will become one of the ardent supporters of uh, getting rid of slavery throughout the Civil War as Secretary of State under Abraham Lincoln. Yeah, what are what kind of country are we if we are to continue with this institution? So when Taylor dies uh, in his uh, as a president, Stephen Douglas will politically manipulate the compromise to pass. 
you will engineer part of the plan to pass independent of each other. So rather than be one giant package where all these policies are listed, he's going to kind of pass them like in single uh, chunks. Mm -hmm. And this will anger many of the both sides. They are going to view this as subverting law and order as well as the lawmaking process. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that even politicians argue about today is if you put too many things together, it makes it more difficult to pass. And many people who didn't want this passed thought all four components together would never pass. And that is why by breaking it up, it made it easier for it to be successful. So like the Missouri Compromise, what the Compromise of 1850 does is all it does is prolong the issue that we know is eventually leading to the war. The North gives in to the political power, uh, get, gets political power with California, and it emboldens them to continue to protect the Union. But the South gets the fugitive slave law, and the popular sovereignty becomes the source of controversy. Now, because allowing settlers to determine the fate of their state was to stop the encouragement of mass migration to these mm -hmm. areas, and we will talk about that later on. Um, agitation over the issue of slavery grows during this time period. The compromise will relieve some tension, but again, the issue of slavery will rear its ugly head. The fugitive slave will not be honored by Northerners, especially uh, a larger increase of the population will become aware or conscious of the ills of slavery, and they're going to try to make uh, or at least participate in any way they can in things like the Underground Railroad. Uh, special U.S. commissioners could issue warrants to arrest fugitives, How and, and, and good bounty hunters or good Samaritans legally were supposed to track them down, capture, and return fugitives to their owners. Um, captured persons then, according to the law, would be placed under exclusive federal jurisdiction and be denied the right of a trial by jury. However, this is largely going to be ignored under the auspices of the Underground Railroad. Yeah, the reality of the Fugitive Slave Law is the fact that it became a legalization of kidnapping of any black person right. in northern states. Right. And the bounty hunters that you mentioned, or quote-unquote good Samaritans, that <laughs> this is your duty to follow the law and enforce this, um, they saw a prop, some of them saw a profit opportunity that I can just basically kidnap any black person and claim them as a fugitive slave, bring them back and get paid by the slave owner. And you have many Northerners, when they see the reality of this in front of them, um, this is something that opens their eyes in terms of what's happening. And that goes with saying, again, that just because something is a federal law does not mean it, it shouldn't be broken. And it kind of goes again with the transcendentalist philosophy of following your moral consciousness. That's important. Um, so the Underground Railroad that you mentioned before, this becomes an incredible movement um, of, and a network that provides fugitive slaves routes to the northern states, but also to Canada, because with the passage of the Fugitive Slave Law, you are not safe anywhere in America at this moment if you're a person of color. So Harriet Tubman, the most famous conductor, is an escaped slave herself. Does she, once she reaches the north, find a place of refuge and hide? No. She makes 19 more trips back to the south and helps 300 other slaves also find their freedom. Armed, by the way. Armed. She's got a pistol in her... In her um, on her side. And that is one of the things that makes her such a noble um, member of our history, is that not only did she find the courage to find her own freedom, but help so many. Um, and then you also have the Fugitive Slave Law bringing this to the surface for so many Northerners who were able to ignore it in the past. You also have books on slavery becoming incredibly popular. 
Things like Uncle Tom's Cabin, again written in 1852 by a woman named Harry Beecher Stowe, will reflect a very harsh perspective of slavery in the South. It will emotionally appeal to the Northerners. Obviously, the Southerners will condemn it as a book of lies, and this will be put on a lot of uh, no reading lists uh, within high society in the South. Yes, and the other thing that's interesting is some of these books condemning slavery were actually written by Southerners. Um, the Impending Crisis of the South was written by Hinton R. Helper in 1857. He's saying, look, slavery is keeping us backward. We're falling behind the North. Um, he showed data suggesting that the continuation of slavery is going to continue to weaken the South economically. And his fellow Southerners, he's pleading with them, wake up. We need to recognize that we have to move forward and progress, otherwise we'll be left behind for generations. The Southern states, obviously, quickly ban the book. <laughs> so it's widely read by free soilers, people that believe that this is part of the problem going forward. The future burgeoning economy of industrialization is what we need to move towards. So what is the reaction to all of these anti-slavery propaganda or literature, according to the Southerners? Well, they're going to react in a variety of ways. For one, slavery will be justified in the Bible. And to many of the people that are highly religious at the time, Bible is beyond any federal or state law we can think of. The curse of Canaan becomes one of the stories that will be used to justify the enslavement of African Americans during this time. Another important um, term that was used was Slavery is much better than the wage slavery that you're using in yeah. the North. Those factory workers that you employ in terrible conditions and um, go in for 14 hours losing limbs and getting sick with the dirt and soot in their lungs, that is much better because we house our slaves. We take care of them. We feed them to make sure there are clothes on their back. We care for them, unlike you, the profiteer or the corporation. And one of the principal individuals that really kind of proposed that particular viewpoint is a man named George Fitzhugh. And he will attack the principle of equal rights in his books, Sociology of the South, published in 1854, and Cannibal's Law, all in 1857. That will go more into depth of how the system of slavery not only is better for uh, African Americans in terms of economics, but it's better for them in terms of culture. Yes, in terms they are of learning from the Southern culture and, and therefore improved. Right, they're improved. Correct. Now, um, the thing that happens in the 1850s is the national political parties are in crisis. All of these um, elements of expansion, crisis of the economy, and the social factors surrounding slavery create conflicts within their parties. The election of 1852 is where we see the Whigs nominate the Mexican war hero, General Winfield Scott. The party chooses to ignore the issue of slavery completely uh, and just focus on a more of a traditional platform. We don't want to talk about the uncomfortable things that will cause disagreement amongst our supporters, so let's just focus on this, the economy and traditional things. The conscious Whigs, and conscious Whigs meaning conscious of the issue of slavery, they begin fighting with the quote-unquote cotton Whigs, and you start to see a divide between the Whig party in North and South. The Democrats nominate a safe candidate, Franklin Pierce. He's a Northerner who supports the fugitive slave law, basically somebody who says, we'll allow the North to have their law that they need. We see that there needs to be a following of law and order. Democrats win in all but four states in the electoral vote, and it suggests that the Whig party is dissolving, much like the Federalist Party about 40 years prior. And now that the Democratic Party has power in both the presidency and Congress, um, this is going to be the environment that will cause a controversy uh, over the Kansas-Nebraska Act in 1854. Senator Stephen A. Douglas is going to make a huge mistake, and here's the context of it. 
Douglas wanted to increase his own real estate holdings and property holdings by passing a law that would authorize the construction of a transcontinental railroad with the major terminus stationed in Chicago. Now, other southern congressmen wanted to have the railroad be close to the south, toward the city of New Orleans. Now, in order to get his bill passed, Douglas will have to compromise by introducing a bill that will divide the territory above that 36-30 line parallel line into two parts, Kansas and Nebraska. He will agree that to have each territory allowed to practice popular sovereignty or squatter sovereignty to determine if it would allow or prohibit slavery in the region. The reason why this is so important is that 3630 line that you just mentioned, that goes back to 1820. The Missouri Compromise had established there would be no longer any other states north of that line that would be slave. But popular sovereignty gives the opportunity or the possibility that one of these, if not both of these states, could become slave states depending upon the uh, who settles there. So this is an opportunity for the Southerners that they see as something they must capture. And if we can expand slavery into both these territories, this will give us a significant shift and almost nullify the balance of power that has been gained in the 1850 Compromise by California being free. So this basically nullifies the Missouri Compromise as um, a law that established that slavery could not be north of that line. At least by norm or by culture. It will, not until, it will not be invalidated until the Dred Scott decision, which we'll discuss much later. 